0: Hey guys, Jared Crawford here, producer of the Flyover Country podcast, bringing you day two of Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings taking over 97.1 FM Talk out in St. Louis. Today we've got uh, another great slate of interviews. James Galliano uh, to talk violent crime, the crime wave, both in St. Louis and across the country. Mark Paoletta to talk uh, Roe v. Wade and SCOTUS. Uh, confidant of Justice Clarence Thomas to give some really good insider information, and then Caroline Downey to talk uh, school closures. She's from National Review, wrote a great piece about the impact of school closures on students' outcomes. So those are our interviews for today. I won't hold you up anymore. We'll jump right into the uh, second day slate, second and final day of uh, Scott and Joe taking over 971, the Mark Reardon show. So let's get right into it, a little bit of Scott and Joe to start, and then of course all of those interviews for you guys. So here we go, appreciate everybody listening, of course subscribe to the Flyover Country podcast, wherever you enjoy podcasts. Uh, if you enjoy what you hear today, we've got a bunch of other content like this, so without further ado, here is Joe and Scott, day two on 97.1 FM Talk, the Mark Reardon Show.
1: Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Fly over country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff.
2: 971 FM Talk Podcast.
3: Mark
4: Reardon.
2: You
3: know, politicians want to force you to cover your face as a way for them to cover their own asses. Mark Reardon. Does the president not know what's going on? I don't care if you think
2: I'm Satan reincarnated. The Mark Reardon Show is on now. 97.1 FM Talk. You're listening to The Mark Reardon Show. I am Scott Jennings alongside I'm Joe Arnold, and so pleased to be
5: back again. And so, Scott, I get, apparently we didn't do so horribly yesterday. They. Are having us back back again they also are kind of apparently desperate so i mean <laughs> i think that's part of the reason that i we're don't here. think that's true i think i is saw true. there was a huge line of people auditioning for this that that was that was the unemployment that was a whole different <laughs> anyway <laughs> Big show back. Today. uh mark is still recuperating from the covid and so he's at home and uh the only update I've gotten from him is a photograph of a Diet Coke and a, a description of the
2: drool on his pillow. Oh, man. Mark's still suffering over yeah, there. So, so we're, we're, keeping like, the, we're keeping the seat warm. But we're trying to do right by the, the Mark Reardon show. We've got a big show today. Right now, we're actually watching while we're talking uh, live coverage of the U.S. Senate floor where they are voting on the Democratic abortion bill, which is expected to fail. Uh, and Joe Manchin is expected to join the Republicans in voting against that. So there will be a bipartisan vote against the Schumer bill. We're going to pay attention to that and we're going to talk about that issue uh, during the hour. Uh, Coming up in this hour, uh, at the bottom of the hour, uh, we have a great guest uh, coming up. uh, uh, Jim Galliano is coming up here uh, to talk about national crime issues. An old friend of mine, CBS uh, law enforcement analyst and an old colleague from CNN. Next hour, we've got a clerk from Clarence Thomas's chambers, uh, Mark Paletta, big time lawyer, former clerk. Otherwise, (laughs) yeah, he might be accused of leaking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Former clerk, but a a great lawyer and he's got some insights on the court. We're going to talk about those. issues. I cannot wait for that. Just because if if, if nothing else, I mean, obviously there's
5: tons of things to talk about in terms of the protests outside the justice's houses and, and about the actual, you know, what the illegal draft, but just get an idea from an actual someone who's right
2: there recently about what happened? Yeah, I, it, it will be amazing to get Mark's insights, and also on Clarence Thomas himself. You know, they're very close. I mean, they ride around in an RV together, and uh, he, he's really close to the Thomases. And and uh, he's been a passionate defender because Thomas has been uniquely and savagely attacked over the years. And Mark's always been a big defender. So we'll talk to Mark, and then the final hour, uh, we have a writer from National Review coming on called Caroline Downey. She's written an article about the detrimental impacts on education of uh, minority children and poor children during COVID. And there's some important new research out from Harvard and Caroline's written a nice summary of that. She's gonna come on and talk to us about her reporting. I know that, by the way,
5: Scott is, is a, a frequent guest of Mark Reardon's on, on 97.1 FM talk here from as a result of his political analysis and CNN. But I should point, point out, Scott, you just wrapped up your most recent semester of being a professor at Harvard. Uh, university and this uh, School of Government there correct?
2: Yeah, John F. Kennedy School of Government. I'm a I'm a lecturer there in the Graduate School, and I teach a class called Modern American Political Campaigns. I get to fly up to Cambridge and and uh, meet with these uh, hundred plus students every week. It's really a, an honor to do it. But I was going to ask you. I mean, even though
5: and obviously you've been very you're not just a company man when it comes to Harvard, but I'm saying you've been very complimentary of of free speech, if you will, within their own um, you know ranks in terms of what you're allowed to do during your own class, but at the same time, I was surprised. I was surprised for a Harvard study to be coming out apparently critical
2: of school shutdowns. Well, you're seeing this around the left now. Um, I'm not saying the researchers were necessarily on the left, but you're seeing voices on the left who were some of the loudest voices when it came to shutting down our economy, shutting down the schools, you know, locking down American society are now all of a sudden, even some officials in Joe Biden's government, the education secretary the other day tweeted, whoa, gee whiz, who knew this was going to hurt the kids so much. (laughs) Way to keep up, buddy. I mean, anybody with kids out there knew how bad this was. And now we have actual research on it. Um, And so it's going to be good to talk about that. But you brought up a term that I think we should get to to start the show today. All right. The term is free speech. I did. And I think the biggest free speech issue that has everybody a buzz in America right now is Elon Musk buying Twitter and making the announcement that he is going to let, well, let me say this. He, he's made the announcement that Trump should not have been banned. Let's hear from Elon Musk about Donald Trump's Twitter account.
3: Opponent bans should be uh, extremely rare and really reserved for accounts that are uh, bots or Uh, spam, scam accounts. I do think that it was not correct uh, to uh, ban Donald Trump. I think that that was a mistake because it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice.
5: So Elon Musk, speaking at a Financial Times conference, going on to say, I would reverse the permaban. Banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it's morally wrong and flat out stupid. Of course, Trump. In the meantime, Scott, as you know, has in in the in the wake of Jack Dorsey and, and the the Twitter uh, board and the the corporation silencing him, went out and invested in this Truth Social. Which right.
2: I, I have no idea how that's doing. I, I don't either. I mean, there there's been all this conjecture that it wasn't doing very well, and then there was another site called Getter G E T T R that was launched by a guy I know him actually named Jason Miller, who was a big Trump advisor during his campaigns. And that one gets a lot of publicity as well. And so the big question now is, if Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter and he says, well, I think we should have Donald Trump back, will Donald Trump actually do it or is he going to stick with his own platform? Of course, in the past, he has said, I'm not going on Twitter. I'm going to stay
5: on truth. Uh, I hope Elon buys Twitter because he'll make improvements to it. He's a good man, but I'm going to be staying on truth. Of course, it only makes sense from a business standpoint. He's not going to stay at a
2: Hampton Inn. He's going to stay at a Trump Hotel. Yeah, but the, but for him, though, and to debate this a little bit, can you resist the opportunity to go back to the place that launched you in the first place? I mean, there's no question that Donald Trump using Twitter in the 2016 campaign and the run up to that absolutely dominated the news cycle. I mean, it was the first time in American history where someone had something in their pocket they could pull out and literally in 30 seconds completely upend the news cycle on any given day he did it as a candidate he did it as president and once you've had that power and had it taken away from you i can only imagine you wake up every day longing to have that power again
5: i I think to be fair i think barack obama's campaign really kind of was the first
2: to really use it no but they but they didn't they didn't like they literally didn't on a whim just say let's throw this out there and and change the news cycle (laughs) i mean they if you go back and look at his tweets it's nowhere. I mean, it was. It was, they're not, in the, they're it was they're not in the same it universe. Was, it was issuing. A, I agree with you. It was it was more of just a very general. Or they, they were a social media oriented operation. But right. I'm saying what Trump did was beyond just the use of a tool. This this literally changed. I mean, think about it. He had something in his pocket, and he, and if he pulled it out and used it, he could change the chirons on cable channels. And and you could see it happen. A tweet would come out, and on your TV, literally a minute later. Trump, tweet, colon, whatever it was. He, he had that much control over our national conversation. I, don't, I just don't get the feeling that truth social is going to give him that. Now, certainly for the, the most uh, devout Trump
5: followers, they miss Donald Trump being on Twitter. There are, however, some more rank-and-file institutionalist Republicans who
2: pr- probably have breathed somewhat of a sigh of relief at times. Well, how many people have you talked to? that voted for Trump who have said some variation of this. Man, I love that guy. I love everything he did. I just wish he'd stay off Twitter. That's I mean, right. you heard that for four yeah. years. So it took care of it for him. Yeah, you, you heard that. And, and that's been a big political question. Has, you know, he hated being banned and and everybody was thinking it was unfair. But on net, has it been a net positive for Donald Trump to not be on Twitter? Now he still communicates by press release. I get all these releases. And then and he, somebody puts it on Twitter for him. Yeah, but, but being off Twitter it, it's essentially cutting off that impulse. You know, it's giving him impulse control. And which, I, if, 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 but we all had it, you know? And, and, and so th- there's a real school of thought here that being off Twitter has kept him from hurting himself even more than he might have otherwise done in his uh, exile here out of the White House. Don't you subscribe to that service where, again, it
5: makes you like ask yourself a question first before you actually click send on the Twitter?
2: Oh, I do. Twitter Blue. I do. And it's for that reason because once you hit send on the tweet it, it's like uh it's like hey you know this, this are is sending you sure st- about this yes it says sending tweet and it has a little circle and like you have 60 seconds to to rethink it and i have rethought a few and it saved me a few typos he would not do that by the way there's no, no there's no way that that wouldn't be authentic but I, I actually think it's possible that we might look back on this and say the ban backfired on the people who wanted to rid American discourse of Donald Trump's voice. You know, there there were people back in 2017. Remember when we were having the row with North Korea, a row I guess in uh, Britain. But but people back in 2017 were saying Twitter has to ban him because he's going to tweet us into a nuclear war. They had been trying to get rid of that guy for all 4 years and they finally did it in the wake of January 6th. I want to hear by the way in a moment here
5: from Guy Benson of Fox News, but let's take a quick break, come back on the other side, hear from uh, from Guy Benson on from Fox News on on this this Trump going forward with with Twitter, as well as the whole question of free speech. It's one thing about Twitter. What about free
2: speech, Scott, on your lawn? On your lawn, and and, 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 in particular, if you are a Supreme Court justice. We'll talk about it when we come back. 97.1 FM Talk, Scott Jennings and Joe Arnold in on the Mark Bearden Show.
3: My question is this, Trump has said publicly he's not gonna come back to Twitter, right? He's got truth now, that's his baby, that's his realm. If you want, TRUMP TWEETS, BASICALLY, GO TO TRUTH SOCIAL. DOES HE HAVE THE DISCIPLINE mm-hmm. TO STAY OFF OF TWITTER? CAN HE RESIST THE SIREN SONG OF THOSE MILLIONS OF FOLLOWERS? Mm-hmm. AND okay. ALSO DRIVING PEOPLE TO TRUTH SOCIAL VIA yeah. TWITTER, RIGHT? Maybe. OCCASIONALLY POPPING HIS HEAD UP AND SAYING, REMEMBER, LIKE AN I'M BACK <laughs> SLAM DUNK TWEET FROM DONALD TRUMP. WOULD <laughs> right. BE ONE OF THE MOST VIRAL TWEETS yeah. IN THE HISTORY OF TWITTER. You're right about that. And HE and- COULD THEN DIRECT PEOPLE OVER TO HIS OWN THING AND SORT OF PLAY BOTH SIDES OF IT, WHICH HE OFTEN DOES. Yeah. So. I would be surprised if he sticks by this plan of saying, oh, no more Twitter for me. I think he likes it too much and I think it benefits him in a number of ways politically.
2: That's Fox News contributor Guy Benson, I'm Scott Jennings alongside Joe Arnold. We're sitting in for Mark Reardon here on 97.1 FM Talk, filling in for our buddy Mark and we're having a little conversation about free speech. We were talking before the break, Joe, about Elon Musk saying it was a mistake to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. and. Uh, discussing whether he's going to come back, that was uh, Guy's thoughts on it. I, I, I think Guy was onto something there. Beyond
5: that, we have Elon Musk actually sending out some very interesting tweets the last couple of days. The, my favorite ones from two days ago. This is this is fantastic. Elon Musk, chocolate milk is insanely good. Just had some. <laughs> this is this is why Twitter was invented. But then today, literally within the last hour, if you don't follow Elon Musk, it's time to do so. Yeah. So fifty nine minutes ago. He has a graphic that shows – and apparently he's retweeting
2: it for our, our – you know, it, it looks – That's not a graphic. That's a very common – I see your phone. That's a very common meme. Is it, though, of the of the but brains? You but you wouldn't know that. See, our, <laughs> our
5: <the laughs> listeners to the Mark Reardon show don't know – You wouldn't know, know that. If you could how, see
2: what he's pointing out right now, it, you've literally seen this a million times. I'm sure that's the first time you've ever seen it. It is. Like, I knew it was. <laughs>
5: this, the meme is basically showing – Three different brain scans or our size brains and the amount of activity going on with the synapses. And there's a little synapse going on with publishing factual, accurate news. There's three different categories there. Number two is publishing articles that use clickbait and out of context quotes. You're showing a little bit more, a few more firing. Scott
2: is just laughing at me, but you're, then you're describing a meme. Everyone has seen this, but I'm saying and you're literally like providing the closed captioning for a meme. But I'm saying what is <laughs> what he's saying on the site about
5: it though. I know publishing articles that are inaccurate, slanderous, and include at least one accusation of being a Nazi. So literally, this he's talking. He's taking on the the,
2: the very the, the the institutional press. Yeah, when it comes to this, right? Oh, and, and he's been critical of uh, of the ban of the New York Post uh, at the end of the election last year when they banned uh, that newspaper from Twitter over publishing the Hunter Biden stuff. So he, he has been an unabashed champion for and warrior for free speech. I think that's why he bought Twitter in the first place. And so that's good for our culture, by the way, because when you go down this slippery slope of saying some people can't talk, which is what I think a lot of people, frankly, on the progressive left want to do. It is a slippery slope in a society that's built on free speech. Our democracy is built on free speech. And Elon, who's not even from here, is riding in to save us. Now, speaking of, let's, let's, let's shift the conversation because there has been another free speech debate going on in American society right now because we have all kinds of people standing on the front lawns of Supreme Court justices in the wake of the Roe versus Wade leaked opinion, the possible opinion that would overturn Roe. We've had protesters showing up at... Uh, different uh, justices' homes, and there's a big question right now about whether this is an appropriate thing. We have a former Supreme Court clerk coming on the show next hour, but I wanted to talk just about the free speech aspect of this, because people on the left say this is harmless speech. In fact, let's hear this. uh, We have a little montage of clips, Joe. Hillary Vaughn from Fox News interviewed Rashida Tlaib, Elizabeth Warren, and Ilhan Omar, all three champions on the progressive left, about these Supreme Court protests.
1: Bottom line, you don't condemn it. You think that these protesters should continue to be outside Supreme Court Justices' homes and interrupt church. I, I get interrupted and protested all the time. I welcome it in many ways, as long as it's not, you know, uh, violent rhetoric, uh, talking about, you know, physical harm and all those kind of things. I think it's just really important to understand that that happens. Uh, we're in public service. So this Supreme Court said back then, protesters should be able to get right in people's faces. Now. They are erecting barriers to try to keep protesters as far away from themselves as possible. I think that's fundamentally wrong. you think that these protesters should be prosecuted for breaking federal law.
0: What is the federal
1: law? It's U.S. Code 1507. So you don't think, you think it's okay for these pro-abortion protesters to go outside? Supreme Court judges have heard a case, they themselves have said it is protected by the First Amendment for people to protest outside of the House, to protest outside of everywhere.
2: What's amazing, Joe, about these comments from Tlaib, Warren and Omar is that they apparently want Supreme Court justices to determine the outcome of legal cases based on public opinion, based on angry mobs, and not the United States Constitution and not the law. Think, I mean, think about that for one second. They want people, if, if we can just get enough of an angry mob on your front lawn, that should sway your legal judgment? It's outrageous. Well, that, of course, is you hit the root the root uh, element of all of this, which
5: is to say, what is the purpose or motivation for someone to be protesting in the first place? It's one thing to I just want to have your voice heard on an issue. But the, the location of it then is is key here. Now, I'm of kind of two minds here, though, because I know that I mean, and thanks to your staff here, Scott, we've have the U.S. Code 1507 in front of us. Whoever with the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding the administrative administration of justice, or with the intent of influencing a judge, juror, witness, or court officer in the discharge of his duty, pickets, parades in or near a building, housing court of the U.S., in or near a building, or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness, blah, 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 or with that intent, uh, basically... Um, influencing shall, any judge. ...shall be fined under this title, but... So I guess the law is the law, and I and, and I don't know how else you can slice it. I am a free speech hawk, uh, and so I don't like the idea of st- – you have to be very, very careful. What's, it's the very First Amendment we have. Here. It's I, a Bill of Rights. I, and I, I agree. I'm, con- I'm concerned about saying I don't want you to be allowed to – Protest or
2: complain. I agree with you, and I guess the question we're asking here is when does free speech become intimidation? Because honestly, if you were in your house and three hundred people showed up and some of them, by the way, are wearing the tactical masks and the and all that, would you feel comfortable going out on your front porch? i mean, i would you would you send your spouse out? Would you send your send your kids outside to wade through the crowd? Certainly I not. mean, of course you wouldn't. so you would feel intimidated. This is and uh, this in the statements of these people egging them on are saying, hey, we want them to influence or interfere with these judges, which I think is against this law. And they are being backed up by the White House. Let's hear from Joe Biden's White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, who is encouraging these protests to continue.
1: So I know that there's an outrage right now, I guess, about uh, protests that have been peaceful to date. And we certainly continue to encourage that outside of judges' homes. And
0: that's the president's position.
2: So she said we encourage protests outside justices' homes? They're treating these Supreme Court justices like any other politician. And there is a difference between the president or a senator and a congressman and these judges who are supposed to be insulated from these kinds of angry mobs. They just are. That's why they're given lifetime appointments. That's why they don't appear on a ballot. They are supposed to be insulated from this. Of
5: course, this is just one year after the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, Or maybe at the time was minority leader uh, chuck schumer stood on literally the steps of the supreme court let's hear it saying we're going to reap the whirlwind let's hear chuck
6: i asked my colleagues to think carefully about their vote to grapple with the impact of a world without roe because all of us will have to answer for this vote for the rest of our time in public office last week's draft decision didn't come out of nowhere it didn't materialize in a vacuum on the contrary It is precisely the outcome that extreme Republicans have been working towards for years.
2: Let's hear from Chuck Schumer on when, this was a few months ago, on the steps, on the literal steps of the Supreme Court yelling at the judges himself.
3: And they're taking
2: away
6: fundamental rights. I wanna tell you, Gorsuch, I wanna tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price.
2: I mean it was absolutely threatening what hit violence
6: you if you go forward with these awful decisions.
2: I mean absolutely threatening violence. Now these angry mobs that have formed at these Supreme Court justices homes. Right. I'm pretty sure they heard Chuck Schumer last year. Look, we got to take a break. We're on 97.1 FM Talk. I'm Scott Jennings along with Joe Arnold and when we come
5: back many people of course concerned about uh, violent crime in general even though St. Louis's uh, crime statistics violent crime last year were down as the murder rate is concerned uh, uh credit to KSDK, the i team over there yesterday their story about the uh, police chief uh, john hayden talking about pol- officers moving to mandatory 12-hour shifts and they are anticipating us with the staffing issue uh, basically as the summer heats up more violent crime in st louis what should we done about this and what is the national view of of that crime strategy when we come back
2: on 97.1 fm talk Scott Jennings and Joe Arnold in for Mr. Reardon today. He's recovering, and we hope to get him back in the studio uh, in the next couple of days. Thanks for joining us and making us part of your afternoon. A little breaking news here. The United States Senate has failed to advance a bill that would have uh, been a sweeping abortion bill put forward by the Democrats. It failed on a 49-51 to vote. It was a bipartisan majority of the Senate. Guess who sided with the Republicans? Joe Manchin joined all the Republicans to reject. So they. So Chuck Schumer, not only does he not have 60 votes for his abortion plan, he doesn't have 50 votes for his abortion plan. We're going to talk about that next hour. But we are pleased at this moment to be joined on 97.1 FM Talk by an old friend of mine, Mr. Jim Galliano of New York. Now, you might know Jim, if you live in New York, as the mayor of Cornwall on Hudson Village. But I know him as the most qualified law enforcement analyst in the United States of America, West Point graduate, 25 years in the FBI. He did all sorts of investigative work, tactical resolution, crisis management. He went to Afghanistan three times. He got the FBI's second highest award for valor. This man knows law enforcement and he knows how to protect America, and apparently he knows how to run Cornwall on the Hudson Village. So, welcome to the show, Jimmy. Glad to be uh, uh, having you on the air today. Thanks, brother.
6: Scotty, great to join you and Joe today. And boy, if I ever need a public relations firm, my man, you have got the job. Thank you don't you need one. I mean,
2: you're, you're on CBS. You're running campaigns uh, for mayor in Cornwall on Hudson. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i just like a hype man for Jim, you. I,
5: I got to tell you, he has been singing your praises off the air for years. <laughs>
2: and I'm so glad to well, finally meet you uh, here on the air. Yeah. Uh, Jim, well, thanks for being well, with us today, and 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 I want to hear from you about uh, about this national crime issue. But but before we, I just want to make sure people know where to find you. Right now, you are the CBS Law Enforcement Analyst, and we can catch you on various CBS broadcasts. Correct?
6: That's absolutely right. CBS News, uh, CBSN, our, our streaming platform, any of those. And uh, unfortunately. Or fortunately, the only time I'm on, and it's in rare occasions, is when something bad happens, either a mass shooting or a terrorist attack. Or, you know, Scotty, kind of what we used to do, what I used to do with you in the green room is is demystifying and breaking down law enforcement and, and complex uh, terror matters. So that's, that's kind of what that gig does.
2: Well, uh, when I first met uh, you, Jim, we were working together on CNN. And uh, as you said, when bad things would happen, they would put you on a plane and send you there. And you did a great job sort of explaining what was going on, what the various law enforcement agencies were doing in the aftermath, how they were conducting investigations. And sadly, what we wanted to talk to you about today is that, candidly, there are bad things going on all over America. We have a national crime wave, murder rates, carjackings. Big cities are under siege. And I was wondering, given your experience, given your perspective, what are cities going to do about this? I mean, we have, I think, crime waves going on. We have local prosecutors who are looking the other way. We have politicians, you know, sort of more beholden to progressive activists than they are to the citizens who live there. Is this a big of a problem as I perceive that it is? I mean, I look around this country and I'm thinking, who feels safe anymore? Yeah, that's a that's a great windup, Scotty. And, and and really, it goes back to a number of things. So,
6: so we all know that on Memorial Day in, in, in 2020, George Floyd was murdered, and, and that is the correct terminology for it since a jury found uh, Officer Derek Chauvin guilty of uh, pressing his knee into the man's neck for an internally long period of time, and, and and Mr. Chauvin rightly went to jail for it. But what we did in the country is that we overreacted, as, as often happens when the pendulum over course corrects, and we started this notion this idea that we should defund the police. New York City Council did that last year. They took 1 billion with a B dollars out of a 7 billion dollar budget. Um Minneapolis has done it, Seattle has done it, Atlanta has done it. Many different cities are undergoing this this fantasy that Uh, You know, you can close prisons down and that's going to make us safer. You can you can execute bail reform, which means that cash bail system in New York state is 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 no longer in existence. So you can be a recidivist. You can even conduct some crimes of violence and you can just you can operate out of a revolving door. Those things are all a product of this overreaction now. I'm studying police use of force as a doctoral candidate at St. John's, and one of the things that I'm applying are the 25 years I spent in the FBI in New York City. And just to give you a quick marker here, I arrived in New York City as a freshly minted FBI agent out of Decatur, Georgia, and what did the FBI do? They decided to send me to to, to Manhattan. Well, New York City had just suffered the biggest homicide surge and rate in its history. City of 8, 8.4 million people, 2,262 people were killed. Vast majority, 95% of the victims and perpetrators were people of color. When I left the FBI and retired in 2016, and no credit of mine, but the New York City Police Department had applied broken windows policing, CompStat. these are things that your listeners are, I'm sure are familiar with, as well as stop, question, and frisk. And what had that done? It brought the homicide rate down below three hundred, an incredible drop. And I'll wrap it, Scott, by saying, and Joe, by saying this to you: New York City is eight point four million people, and we're we're hovering around now four hundred homicide cases. What is going on in St. Louis? You're a city of three hundred five thousand people, and I looked up some of the crime statistics. And in twenty twenty, you suffered two hundred sixty three murders, just shy of what New York City, in a city of eight point four million. Uh, suffered, um, you know, of recent. And I think a big part of it is, Scott, you mentioned at the top, is is, is prosecutors. City, the City Journal a couple days ago came out with the five worst prosecutors in America, and Kim Gardner had that ignominious distinction of being one of those five. And I think that's the problem. You're not prosecuting crimes. You're demonizing the police. There's absolutely a war on law enforcement. And these are the things, guys, that are contributing to the huge uptick in crime and the surge around the country.
5: Those are twenty 2020 twenty numbers. Twenty twenty one. St. Louis prides itself, at least, that there were they. They began counting some homicides differently, so it came down pretty precipitously, and that was kind of a, a hallmark that that you can kind of hang your hat on is that it uh, compared to the crime wave going up in other cities, the St. Louis's murder rate actually went down last year. But a lot, a lot of critics are saying that was just more of a number crunch than it was necessarily a a change in the actual violent crime uh, situation. And thank you for the. The inside, uh, you know, analysis here of of St. Louis. I on that score, uh, KSDK uh, uh, five on your side. The I team there yesterday had a story out about the police officers moving to mandatory twelve hour shifts uh, this summer, basically due in part to understaffing of the department. And they're saying, you know, as and they're quoting from the uh, from the internal memo they got a hold of here as the summer months near, bringing a likely increase in call
2: volume and a higher propensity of violent crime, these adjustments are needed. Jim, on that front, what I what I am interested in knowing is, I mean, I've assumed this for some time, but m- my assumption is is that police morale must be just at an all-time low. And I also assume it's very difficult right now to recruit police officers because, I mean, it strikes me outside looking in, police officers must feel like that politicians will cut and run on them in a moment. I mean, that's what's happening in cities across America. It's pretty despicable. Yeah, it
6: is really difficult right now. I mean, when you think about it, across the country, there are between 700,000 and 800,000 men and women in blue who swear an oath. They strap on a a sidearm and pin on a badge every day, and they truly go out there to do the right thing. Are there bad cops? Of course. There are bad elements in, 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 in any profession, but the vast majority of them run to the sound of the guns. When the rest of us are fleeing in fear, they're running to the sound of the guns. I think you make a good point there, Scott, in regards to recruitment and retention. Yes, it is. It has taken a precipitous drop across the country. In New York City, they are refusing to allow police officers to retire or leave. They're holding them in place because cops don't want to be part of a system whereby they're not going to be defended for acting in good faith. And I'll give you one statistic for St. Louis that I think contributes to this, you know, going back to to going back to the to to the uh to to, to the da there miss gardner um in 2019 she prosecuted 1641 of the 7045 felony prosecutions sought by the st louis pd now think about that. you're a cop and you're working you're working hard to try to make the city safer, and she elects to prosecute 1,641 of 7,045 felony prosecutions. Yeah, that, that definitely contributes to, to lowering morale where cops are going, why am I putting myself in harm's way? Why am I staying overnight to finish the paperwork and make sure the perp is into the system if I know it's a catch-and-release program?
2: Yeah, you catch the. I mean, they're doing their job. They're doing their job to catch them in the first place, and And not and not just catch them, but then investigate it, do the paperwork, like you know, do all the work that's necessary to put in the hands of the prosecutor to say, "Here's everything you would need to put a criminal behind bars." I mean, not not only does it demoralize the police, I'm sure, uh, Jimmy, but also. It emboldens the criminals because they know if they go out and commit a crime, there is a reasonable percentage chance they're going to get away with it. And so I, I assume, from your perspective, that means they're going to go do it again. Yeah. And part
6: of it, guys, it, 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 it's messaging. And I think, you know, you don't want to think about that when it comes to public safety. But unfortunately, we do compete against a media that often can be slanted towards police officers. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, there's a thing called availability bias or the availability heuristic, which means the, the more often you're exposed to something, the more that you just assume and expect that that's reality. And when we have people, including politicians, I mean, our vice president said just reckless and hyperbolic things. The president, a number of members of the Senate and, and, and Congress saying these things that are just not true. Let me just give you these are the stats that your listeners need to understand when somebody goes, there's a war on young men of color and and police officers are hunting them down and killing them for sport. Let me give you these numbers. Every year in this country, police officers have somewhere between 76 million and 250 million interactions with citizens. It could be everything from walking Mrs. McGillicuddy across the street, to responding to a domestic, to handling a bank robbery, any type of interaction, 76 million to 250 million. Do you know how many people are shot and killed by police every year? It's a a number that stayed pretty solid for the last at least eight years. Around a
2: 1,000. Of that 1,000, how many of those people uh, let me, let me, let me are me interrupt you, Let me interrupt you. Let yeah. me interrupt you for one second. If, if you polled the United States no. of America yeah. no. and said, how many people do you think the police shoot every year? I guarantee you a 1,000 would get zero votes. And then people yeah. would say 10,000, 100,000, a million. Yeah. Because yeah. the media coverage of this is so yeah. skewed. It's so outsized compared to this. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jimmy, but but you know no. it's true. If you polled the American people, yes. they would have no idea what you just said, but it is the truth.
6: Scotty, it's, it, it's even worse than that. I gave you the number of people that are shot and killed by police. The vast majority of them are armed. The vast majority of them have a weapon on them, and they're actively trying to use it. Now, I'll use... 2020 statistics since i used that before in 2020 of the somewhere around a thousand it's either 990 or it's a thousand and five it always seems to work out around that number for people shot and killed by police 60 were considered unarmed now i want to explain one thing here too because there's there's an asterisk unarmed just means that you don't have a gun or knife on you so if you violently resist arrest you struggle and you attempt to disarm an officer, or you pick up a cudgel, a stick on the side of the road, and bash him in the head with it, and you get shot, you are listed as unarmed. Now, of those unarmed, demographically speaking, if we're looking at the numbers in 2020, 26 of those 60 were white, 18 were African-American, 10 were Hispanic, two were other, and four were, as of yet, unknown. Now, what does that say? People will push back and say, yeah, that's great, Jimmy, great stats. But our population percentages don't match up. Whites make up 66% of the U.S. population. African-Americans somewhere between 12 and 13%. The uncomfortable conversation we have to have. Groups do not offend the same. So if you're looking at this and it's a one-size-fits-all, it just doesn't work. There is not a war on any particular race or ethnicity here. And the problem, guys... Is I just don't believe that people are kept abreast of what these statistics are. It's what I'm studying right now. I'm looking at the NYPD across a 20-year period, and I'll leave you this one last stat. In 1972, the NYPD had 903 weapons discharges, everything from a, you know, a, you know, an interdiction or a, a adversarial contact with, with with the person to a suicide to dispatching a dangerous animal and 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 uh accidental discharge do you know that last year they had 23 so from the early 1970s 900 weapons discharges last year 23 and of those 23 you also have to factor in taking a dog out that's dangerous uh suicides unfortunately because cops are more prone to it than just about any other profession and accidental discharge. That is an incredibly restrained police department. You'd never know that if you followed the news, guys. Credit, credit
5: to you for, first of all, this beginning this entire conversation by pointing out the whole Derek Chavan and the fact that there, yes, there are it's, it is possible for a cop to do something wrong. It is possible for this to happen. But the question I have for you is because this entire policy across the country, policies and strategies have been uh, warped or are or, or, or affected by this, and this this is the pendulum where we are right now. Do you see the pendulum swinging back? Are we gonna, are we going to get more realistic and start looking at things more critically the way that you are?
6: I, I do. You, you know what's encouraging to me? There was a Gallup poll that came out during that summer of unrest of 2020, which really, as we're entering into the summer season here shortly was just under two years ago. There was a Gallup poll taken, and and this is staggering, and you would never know this by following the news, but if you talk to people, and if we do things one-on-one, face-to-face, you understand that feelings are different than some of the hyperbolic rhetoric and the incendiary-charged language that's thrown about by politicians. And I can say that because I guess I have to admit to being one now. Think about this, in 2020, the height of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and and the riots that happened that summer, 81% of African-Americans polled said they wanted the same amount of police presence or more in their neighborhoods. When we start ratcheting back police and we start saying we don't want them in our neighborhoods, we don't want to see police out there, violence interrupters can handle this. Send a social worker instead that's not what the people in the neighborhoods that are beleaguered and under siege really want. It's a feel-good thing, but it's a message that is distorted. And I think that 81% number really is a realistic number for the amount of people that I've come across and had contact with during my life of law enforcement, which was much of it, was in urban areas in the inner city. That number
2: stands up. CBS Law Enforcement Analyst Jim Galliano has been our guest. Thank you, Jimmy. We're on 97.1 FM Talk, back after the top of the hour with more news coverage here. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings in for Mark Reardon. Get more at 971 talkcom 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. This is the Mark Reardon Show on
5: 97.1 FM Talk. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings in for Mark Reardon. Mark is still at home, recuperating from the Rona. Mark, get well soon. Hopefully you're not even listening. You're just resting. We got earlier a tweet or a text from him that he was drooling on his pillow no he's listening he i get little he sends me texts critiquing your every i can only imagine (laughs) hey by the way uh so i I, scott and i have our frequent guests of of marks and we're just kind of surprised that he's that steve moore and company have allowed us to kind of take over for a couple of days but in the meantime how to get a hold of us uh so scott on twitter is scott jennings ky so that's pretty easy ky stands for kentucky you got it i am joe arnold report because I used to be a reporter on the television, Joe Arnold Report. So tweet at us. Let us know how we're doing here and anything you want to hear about for our questions you have for some of our guests and, and that sort of thing. And uh, thrilled to be with you and, and back. And one other quick little uh, uh, tease, if I could, Scott, and that is that you and I host a podcast of The the Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. It's the flyover pod on Twitter,
2: so follow that as well. Yeah, we uh, had a, a, an idea several months ago that uh, there wasn't enough political punditry and analysis being generated <laughs> out of middle America. Out of yeah, that's right. There's plenty being generated on, on the coast. coasts and in the big cities, but who among us is generating punditry in Middle America? So we launched flyover Country. We do a weekly roundtable with some great guests. We have some great interviews. In fact, we're gonna upload a lot of this show the last two days to the to the pod feed. And I also write a newspaper column, and I frequently uh, make an audio version of that as well. But it's uh, flower country with Scott Jennings and Joe Arnold hosts our roundtable every week. So I'm I'm proud to to have Joe on uh, board with that. I think it's been a it's been a good ride.
5: Loved your friend Jim Galiano last half hour. As far as really, when I say speaking truth to power, basically that's that's what it is. It's because it's it's basically getting rid of all the narrative and talking about facts and and what the actual truth is on the ground sort of like what we do on in flyover country because you hear a lot of these spins
2: but what's life really like well you you ultimately have to ask yourself do you want to make policy on facts statistics data things that you know are real or do you want to make policy based on your emotional reaction to something some anecdote in the moment that doesn't make what you saw right or good but the question for policymakers is emotion versus facts and data and Jimmy is brilliant. He's, a, he's just so many years of experience. And that's what he does well on CBS and did on, on CNN for a number of years. But 25 years in the FBI, he's also an academic. He knows his stats. And he really laid out chapter and verse how these local prosecutors are failing, failing their citizens. They're failing to prosecute these criminals who time and time again are terrorizing citizens. Got to point out as well, as far as the you know, truth versus narrative, I, I'm going to
5: give your your employer, your other employer, a little hell here. So you be, you, I know you're going to be a team player and you're not going to criticize CNN. But Jim Shudo at CNN today tweets out about how inflation is easing because it's not as bad as it what it was. Like 8.3% in April basically was not as bad as it, what it was in March. I'm like, come on. Well, I saw it's that. Like, I mean, it's sort of like saying we're still shelling your your uh, your village we're, just,
2: we're just not to using as many bombs as we were the month month before. I mean, what is this? We, we were going 80 in a 25. Now we're going 79 in a 25. <laughs> yeah, so we're now I much mean, better drivers. I mean, seriously. We're now much better drivers. What is that? <laughs> this inflate. I, so obviously abortion is dominating the week's news. But I contend uh, that inflation and the economy really are still going to remain the dominant issue in the election. Listen to this. This is the price increases year over year. Gas, 44% higher airline tickets 33% used cars 23 hotel rooms 23 suits 22% bacon bacon 18% uh, oranges 17 tires 16 furniture 15 milk 15 coffee 14 deliveries 14 Bread. by the way You've you suddenly gone into the old time radio of reading the commodity prices. In the I'm morning. telling you, I'm telling you, if you if you this had the, the job, report, if you had the job of reading the commodity price, you'd already had a heart attack. I mean, this is crazy. Bread, fourteen, baby food, if you can find it, thirteen percent, and it goes down the line. Eggs, ten percent, dry. So everything about your day to day life that you're doing, inflation is destroying your family budget. And so we're obviously the news is dominated by abortion. And we're going to talk about that with Mark Paletta, my friend and former clerk for uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas at the bottom of the hour. But the real political driver is going to be inflation and how people feel about the economy. I went to a coffee shop the other day, sign on the door, brand new building, just built brand new coffee shop. This location is closed until further notice but due to lack of staffing and you go to the store and maybe one of the least covered but most important stories in the country, in the country, is that people can't find baby formula. We got a clip on that. Let's listen about the baby formula shortages.
1: Five states, including Texas and Tennessee, have less than 50 percent of formula available. And with supplies running low in 25 other states and here in D.C., the dwindling supply has many parents worried. We get more now from CBS's Janet Chamlian. Empty shelves across the country and some retailers are limiting purchases to prevent hoarding. Baby formula last November was 11 percent out of stock nationwide. Then it got worse, 31 percent by early April and most recently jumping to 40 percent.
5: You know, this is something that there's all kinds of political points to be scored on all kinds of issues. But when it comes down to baby formula. Yeah. Uh, this is something that I mean, this and this is truly an example, Scott. There are times where and you can talk about this because of your political past and the campaigns that you've run. People will hold out support for a candidate or for a party or for you know, and a, a certain kind of philosophy maybe longer than others in certain cases, because they, you know, it's it's kind of deeply rooted, but when you begin to affect babies being fed, that's when you're willing maybe to change your tune or change your approach or or your thought process about maybe it's, maybe we need to rethink who we're supporting.
2: Well, and also you start to rethink what you've been told. This is where you get in trouble in politics. When you try to get people to believe something that defies what they're seeing with their own eyes. And this is the box Joe Biden is in. Yesterday, he's talking about how his policies are helping. They're trying to tell the American people, everything we've done, all we're improving things. And then you get in your car with the 450 gas, and you drive to the grocery with the bacon that costs 18% more, and you swing by the baby formula aisle, and it's empty, the shelves are empty, And you're saying to yourself, the president of the United States and his party says, oh, we're making things better. Yet I can't afford to go to the grocery in my car. And when I get there, the stuff costs too much, or I can't get it. You cannot make people think something other than what they're seeing with their own eyes. And if you try to do that, you will fail. People feel these things and they immediately say, who's lying to me here? Who is lying to me here? This is the box. Joe Biden is in. Instead of taking responsibility, instead of owning it, instead of saying I recognize problems, I I am trying, but there are issues. I, none of that's happening. It's blame someone else. It's I'm actually fixing things, and then they go out with stati- you know macro statistics. No macro statistics makes a mother feel better about not being able to get baby formula. So to your question, voting behavior will be affected by the shortage not by what a politician says. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. See, it's actually getting better. No, it's not getting better. And no one in their right mind is going to believe that. Is it Vladimir Putin's fault? Whose fault is this? Art Laffer,
5: the former Reagan administration economic advisor, speaking on Fox News. Art Laffer this morning on Fox News, talking about who is to blame for inflation.
2: Well, I I just think Biden's crazy on saying that it didn't have anything to do with him because if you look at when that inflation starts, it starts almost literally the day he takes office and it's just been rising steadily. Now, we did have a slight drop this month in the CPI, but that was due to the numbers dropping off uh, the index 12 months ago that were fairly high. They're going to be dropping. The numbers should decline a little bit next month and the month after as well. But in the three months prior to the election, that number is just going to shoot up because the numbers being dropped off are very, very small. And uh, it looks, doesn't look very good for Biden and this administration.
5: Let me ask you a question, Scott. And this is kind of conspiratorial. <laughs> so is it possible that they're kind of just putting up with inflation and this kind of thing and they're saying we're trying to fight it, but ultimately the Democrats don't really care because this is a reordering of society? Well, they're going to care in November when. Well, I, I understand, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, the the argument could be made if you're of a, a particular political persuasion, is the people were suffering before inflation went up, the people on the lowest rungs of society were already suffering. Now you know how it feels. Basically, we need to flood the market. We need to flood society. And so yes, your job does your 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 paycheck doesn't go as far as it did before. But now you know how it feels to be on the lowest rung. In other words, we're going to bring down this to the lowest common denominator here. We're going to be – let's be more equal and equitable in the way the economy works for people. And what that means is we're going to make the people who are making good money – feel the feel the pain at the pump at the at the grocery store everywhere
2: else. Except everybody on the bottom end of the rung is also having to pay more for true. Of course they're I'm getting... trying to make some sense of this and I don't know if I can. Well but the way but to, to take your argument to its natural conclusion is on the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale, well, the argument that you're making is well we'll pay those people. We'll put we we'll, we will send them money from the government. So we'll 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 artificially inflate right their their standard of living from government payments will make the people on the, you know, everybody else feel it worse. So that, that's the argument I, I really think. And we got to take a break in a moment, but I'll, I'll close with this. I really think what they're intending, at least in one area on policy is in energy. They want gas prices to be as high as possible. That is true. They are trying to drive fossil fuels out of our economy and out of this world. They're trying to do it in short order, and they are destroying the energy markets in the United States. That's the plan. They want gas prices to be high. You've heard people in the administration say, if you don't like high gas prices, just buy an electric car. And so to me, the most despicable piece of all of this is that they don't really care that gas prices are high because it's part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Now, everything else is high too, but this energy piece, I think it's really going to – and I'm not – eventually, we're going to have electric cars. We have some now. There's not nearly enough. You can't get them in a timely fashion now. That's coming. You can't charge them enough places. That's but the whole other story. But you can't get them today. They're not right. available enough today. Uh, but that's the answer. And and I just think as a political matter, it's really short-sighted by these progressives because you know average Americans who may be inclined on occasion to vote Democrat – Are getting killed by this they got no capacity to go out and buy an electric car it's not time yet so i think at least on that particular area yeah i think they like high prices democrats are banking on abortion trumping the
5: inflation issue at the midterms this fall when we come back more including we'll hear from representative cory bush of st louis about what she's saying on the about the senate vote today on trying to codify the roe v wade This is the Mark Reardon Show. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings filling in for Mark, who is recuperating, hopefully back tomorrow, but you never know, 97.1 FM
2: Talk. And I'm Scott Jennings alongside my good friend Joe Arnold. We're sitting in for Mark Reardon today. He's a good friend. He is a good friend. He's a good man and a good friend, and we're hoping he's getting better out there. A little breaking news. While we've been on the air today, the United States Senate has voted on the Democratic abortion bill, and it has failed. 51 votes against, 49 votes in the affirmative. They needed 60 to advance it. So not only do the Democrats lack 60 votes to break a filibuster, they lack 50 votes even if they didn't have the filibuster. And there was a bipartisan majority voting against this. One Democrat, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, voted against it. And let me read you a quote, Joe Arnold, from Joe Manchin. I'm listening. When asked why he voted against it, here's what he said. They, this is a direct quote, they are trying to make people believe that this is the same thing as codifying Roe versus Wade. And I want you to know it's not. This is not the same. It expands abortion, in quote, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin telling the truth about what the Democrats are doing in this bill. This is where you've been hammered on Twitter from your many.
5: Of course, on CNN Scott, I don't know what you expect as far as how people react because CNN is not necessarily I love every interaction <laughs> it's not it's not the conservative news network. let's put it that way I love anyway. every I love every fan that said though, because you have been called many names and liar perhaps the, the biggest one uh, over this last last week as far as the way that you are characterizing but apparently this this abortion debate apparently Joe Manchin agrees with you yeah uh, because. What just to be clear, and and we heard this the other day from several of the candidates out there in the primary races and democratic races where they they're, they're they're scared to say or to counter what the actual democratic position is, which basically is abortion on demand, no matter when you're talking about.
2: When I say on television or tweet or whatever forum I'm in, I always say they want nine months, no limits. That's that's what this bill does. There are no limits. You can do it all nine months. And on top of that. And, on, and they get really angry. And then you ask them to articulate, well, what is your limit? What is your limit? And the most common answer is, well, that's between a doctor and the patient. Well, what if the doctor and the patient have a conversation on the last day? This bill would allow it. So my position is the Democrats have revealed themselves on abortion, nine months, no limits. And as Joe Manchin says, that's not codifying Roe, that's expanding. That's expanding this uh, abortion regime in the United States. And by the way, um, vast majority of the American people don't want nine months of no limit abortions.
5: I promised earlier we'd hear from Representative Cory Bush of St. Louis on this matter, speaking today regarding the Senate vote.
7: I'm talking to you, Joe Manchin. I'm talking to you, Susan Collins. I'm talking to you, Lisa Murkowski. I'm talking to anyone who dares to have the power to do something in this moment, who understands the implications of this moment and is considering choosing not to.
5: Did you know, by the way, that the Senate had an option to take up a less extreme measure on this? And Schumer declined she, of course I mean, she mentioned Mikoski and Collins there was there was a bill that would have actually made it more difficult frankly to vote against it for some
2: moderate Republicans of course and Schumer refused why because the Democratic Party leadership is beholden to the most fringe extreme of their party on this topic again I know it's I, I'm a broken record no limits all nine months that's the position anything short of that will not pass it won't They don't have the support for it because the party is beholden, beholden to these progressives who that's their position. It's their donors. It's their grassroots activists on this issue. They are far outside the mainstream of the American people. Of course, you have uh, the the White House, uh, among others, encouraging
5: protests and intimidation of Supreme Court justices on this issue. When we come back, a good friend of Scott's and a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Mark Parolotto is going to be with us to talk about that. And the question I'm going to have for him, uh, and I, I can't wait, uh, Scott, because I, I don't, I haven't spoken to any former Supreme Court clerks about this issue. We've heard a lot of different talk over the last week about what actually happened here. I want to hear his take on this Alito draft. I think how it he can, I think he can really
2: illuminate. I mean, you know. One of the core issues on this is, you know, the few people who actually have access to these kinds of things. That's what I want to know. I mean, it's not like 10,000 people have it. And so in terms of figuring it out, I don't know. I don't know what Mark's going to be able to tell us, but I I think we ought to dig in on that.
5: When we come back, this is Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings in for Mark Reardon, 97.1
2: FM Talk. And I'm Scott Jennings alongside Joe Arnold. Thanks for joining us. Joe is here. 97.1 FM Talk. Mark Reardon's getting better. He's on The Men, but we're hanging out in the meantime. Our next guest, Joe, I'm so excited to have uh, my friend Mark Paoletta on. But before we go to him live, I have got to play a clip. Mark Mark is one of the most important lawyers in conservative legal movement in America that maybe you've never heard of, but you will now. And he went to a congressional hearing the other day. He didn't go to it. He he was the He was the hearing. hearing and had one of the most stunning moments. It was great. He had a back and forth with... Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, let's hear from Mark Paoletta in in the hearing.
7: Brilliant. I think your quote is, many on the left hate Justice Thomas because he is a black conservative who has never bowed to those who demand that he must think a certain way because of the color of his skin. What evidence do you have to support that uh, incendiary charge?
4: Uh, When Chairman uh, Benny Thompson calls him an Uncle Tom because of his views on voter ID and affirmative action. When in fact, more Black Americans support voter ID, and uh, in, with respect to affirmative action in college education, they're 62% opposed to it. So, so that is the most vile, disgusting thing you can say. And and, and so yes, uh, recla- that's that's, that's, re- the evidence, that's the evidence. Reclaiming my time. I just reclaiming, gave you.
7: reclaiming my time. Yes, there are a lot of vile, disgusting things that can. Well, you said. just asked me for an example. The, the notion that that is right, when some members on this side of the aisle and others have been called the n-word throughout different points of our life belies uh, the point that you have a particular bias. uh, And it's an overstatement, which is not surprising when you look at the balance of your testimony. And if Chairman Benny Thompson uh, has an observation to make, uh, he's entitled to free speech. You apparently believe that Jenny Thomas, regardless of how many conflicts uh, she has, is entitled to her own political (laughs) opinions uh, as well. Uh, Can I give you another example? No.
2: <laughs> Mark, Mark Pauletta. By the way, Mark. Can I give you another example? Mark's no. on the line. Mark, thanks for being with us today. And uh, let me let me just take ten seconds and introduce you because you were. Let me just go back. You were uh, counsel to President George H. W. Bush, Bush forty one. In that role, you played a key role in confirming Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, and you've been close to him ever since. And since then, you've had key roles on Capitol Hill. You were counsel to Vice President Mike Pence and had a huge role in judicial confirmations during the Trump administration. You were also chief counsel for the Office of Management and Budget during the Trump administration. Folks, Mark Paoletta is one of the most influential and important lawyers in the conservative legal movement. And you just heard Mike drop Mark, as i was going to start calling you Mike Drop Mark on the line. Thanks for being with us on one <laughs> FM Talk, Mark.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for having me.
5: Absolutely, I, we're so excited to talk to you here. What was? I mean, I'm just curious. After this, that after the mic drop moment, what was the? Uh, was there was there ever any kind of follow up on
4: that from the from the from the committee or anything else? No, they, they never uh, – they, they didn't uh, reach out to me, um, but, uh, but, but a number of the Republican members picked up on this. In fact, one, of the, uh, one member, uh, Matt Gates, actually went to each of the – so, you know, in these congressional hearings with the Democrats running it, it's usually th- uh, four witnesses. Three of them are Democrats, one of them is a Republican. But he turned to all three of the Democrat witnesses and said, uh, does anyone think that, you know, using the term uh, Uncle Tom is not a racist – slur and every single one of them agreed with him so that was that was nice because i i was stunned right sort of this kind of gaslighting or or, orwellian moment where you know day in and day out the left spews this hatred towards justice thomas for 40 years right i just wrote a piece today for newsweek um in terms of being kept out of the african-american museum when it opened up in 2016 there was nothing to clarence thomas in the museum right it's just the it's it's just so for him to ask me for evidence was just astonishing, um, and of course he didn't like his uh, the the answer, and of course he defended uh, Betty Thompson using that term, which also was kind of astonishing to me. Uh, but
2: uh, he, it was uh, it know, was amazing didn't... to me, Mark, that they they asked you for an example, you you came up with the worst example, and then. <laughs> And then they, they didn't want to hear. I mean, it was almost, I mean, it was eminently predictable because they all know what they've said. You told them the truth and they didn't want to hear it. You did write a piece about this and it is at newsweek.com. It's it's really amazing. All of this hatred, 40 years of people coming after Clarence Thomas. You've been friends with Justice Thomas since uh, you helped him in his confirmation battle. I was hoping on this interview today that you could kind of take us inside the mind of Clarence Thomas, uh, all through all of this hatred, all through all of this you know, vitriol, all the attacks, the attacks on his wife now, the role he's played on the court. You know him personally. Does any of this ever affect him? What is his mindset about uh, everything that's done to him and said to him over the years? Uh,
4: you know, he's he's been attacked, as you said, Scott, since the day he came to Washington, It really is 1980 or so, when he first uh, was joining the Reagan administration, Uh, And the left was going after him. And I think he's accepted it uh, that, you know, that they're going to come after him. He's never going to change. He's never going to let that criticism affect what he does as a as a as a justice. And that's the most inspiring thing. Um, So at the public level, you know, as a justice, he's just, you know, a, a constitutionalist, right, an originalist, and, and he really believes, and you're seeing it in all of his. You know, Justice Thomas writes the most opinions per year of any justice on the Supreme Court, okay? He writes in the 30s, okay, from his uh, majority opinions, his concurrences. In his dissents, and some of them are 50 60 pages long and they're toward the forces of going through you know when you're an originalist you're going to look for all the evidence you know um that was back at the time uh the constitution was adopted or a statute um and, and that's what he does other justices lots of them right in the teens like 12 there's a, a justice's uh, 12 opinions a year so he's he's just he's he's at the, the kind of legal pinnacle as i said in my piece um and and then on the personal side, he's the nicest human being uh, you will ever meet and the most caring, and, he, and that's anyone from a Supreme Court justice down to a janitor or, you know, uh, just all stations of life. He will be completely focused on you and what you're talking about, what your interests are. And I, I you know, I've been friends with him, as you said, for many, many years. We went to that terrible time right after... He was confirmed, and he was all beaten up. Obviously, uh, in 1991, I was diagnosed with cancer in 19, uh, 19, early 1992. And he called or came by my house every day when I was going through surgeries and chemotherapy, um, you know, for several months. And that's the kind of guy he is, um, you know. Um, so, so it's, it's 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 ugly behavior towards him. And as I point out in my piece, you know, I, I'm not sure how they can call Justice Thomas this uh, because his views, you know, him, people should be allowed to think what they what they believe. Um, but his views are actually more in, in line and in sync with rank and file black Americans across every single issue. And that's the kind of the strangest thing of all is that I think they th- view Justice Thomas as a threat to their power and what they're sort of pushing. Like school choice, they oppose school choice. The NAACP opposes school choice. I think it's like 80%, 90% of Black parents support school choice, and you, and and so it's it's astonishing to me that um, you know um, the, the Black leadership goes after Justice Thomas like this.
5: You're talking about him being such an independent uh, thinker and certainly willing to take the the blows as he has over the years. So I have to ask you about the intimidation tactics of the protests going on right now in the wake of the Alito leak, uh, the, the, the brief from from last week. And uh, so it, it stands to reason from what you're saying to me is that Clarence Thomas is not going to be uh, you know, cowed by by people protesting outside his house. Can you speak at all to does does his kind of independence and the fact that he is not going to be affected by that – is that is that infectious at all? Do other Supreme Court justices or other people kind of are they strengthened when you see that kind of an example?
4: You know, um, yes, I I think so, and I'll tell you um, this is uh, yes, I, I do think uh, Justice Thomas will never be uh, cowed or or, or, or um, you know bent to the to the mob, um, and I think other justices look to him uh, and. When we did so, as, as Scott said, I was involved with the interviews for the justices uh, w- w- under President Trump, right at the very beginning of the administration. And there was a chart that showed um, how justices over the years had become more liberal, right? Um, and if you, almost every single justice has become more liberal um, over the years, and I, I showed it to all of the the, the folks that we interviewed, and I, I showed them the chart, and I said tell me why this isn't going to happen to you. All of them were superstars. Hmm. All of them had great opinions, you know, but, but it's the pressure. And it's not just like, this is the the, the craziest of all right now, but it's always this way towards conservative justices. Um, And we call it sort of the greenhouse effect, which was a a New York times reporter, Linda greenhouse, who sort of people wanted to be admired by liked by respected. Um, And so they all trended more liberal. And so it is, it is, it's it's a problem. I do think these justices are, are strong and th- you know th- they are not going to be uh, whatever uh, influenced by this mob rule or th- this intimidation. I really do think I think some of it's actually against the law. Um, you know, there's federal statutes and state statutes that prohibit going to justices' homes uh, to to try and pressure them as they're considering opinions. Um, so I'm hopeful that's the way it's going to be, uh, and I think based on the you know folks that Justice um, that President Trump t- selected. Um, and, and President Bush 43, who, who Scott uh, worked for, uh, that they're going to stand strong and, and um, you know, uh, rule the way they, 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 they think they should rule and not based on any external factors.
2: Mark, I want to shift focus to the actual uh, opinion that leaked out from the court. I've got a, a lot of questions about this. Uh, one of them is just about the leak itself. I was wondering sort of as such an experienced. Uh, uh leader in this field, what you thought when you saw that a draft had leaked out from the Supreme Court. I'd like to hear what your reaction was. And also, um, what's, your th- what's your theory? Yeah, what? Yeah, like, how could this have happened? But then number two, um, I was also sort of interested in your perspective on do you believe this is going to stand? I mean, you know, these justices, you know, how it works inside the room, uh, you know, them personally. Uh, so give us a little bit of Mark Paoletta perspective. What was it like for you to see that a leak had occurred? What do you think about the draft? And can we, do you, are you betting this is going to stand uh, in June? Um, I was absolutely stunned.
4: I, I think I was absolutely stunned when uh, I was out walking my dog, when I saw it on my iPhone uh, and stunned. Uh, as I thought about it more, it was almost fitting, right, that the Supreme Court entered abortion-making policy uh, in 1973 and the left, you know, uh, you know, started looking to the court to enact their, their social policies because they couldn't get it through the legislative process. They became the super legislature. And so now, right, now that uh, the court is removing itself from abortion making policy and going back to the Constitution, the left realizes this is no longer our place. We don't control it. So let's burn it down. Let's destroy this place. And how do you do that? You try and, you know, create this level of distrust, right, uh, amongst the justices or, 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 you know, destroy the working relationships by by having a draft out there. So shocking, but when you think about it a little bit in the stakes and what the left has viewed the court as, particularly in this kind of, you know, abortion world, um, not not altogether surprising. My theory is it is that it's a, a, a liberal uh, clerk. Um, who wanted to kind of get it out there to get this pressure on justices, um, uh, you know, to to change and have this, you know, these crazy demonstrations and all that stuff. And you saw some of the reaction from the left calling the person who leaked it a hero. So I completely reject that it's a a conservative clerk. When I worked in the Bush 41 White House and there was the leak of the Anita Hill statement, (laughs) there was a crazy theory that we had leaked it. Um, and I was interviewed by the special counsel that was appointed to look into that leak. So that was absolutely absurd. Uh,
2: and i let me sure let me I ask you, Mark, leaked. on this on this yeah. leak on this leak theory. Let me ask yeah. you a question: Do you believe Chief Justice Roberts has the capacity, using the I guess the the his internal resources, to get to the bottom of this? I mean, I assume it's a small number of people who even have access to these documents. Can yeah. the chief, in your opinion, figure this out, or maybe has he already figured it out?
4: You know what, Scott, I, So from my time being an investigator up on the Hill for 10 years and also being in, in agencies, I was at general counsel and did some leak investigations, I, several of them. It's really, really hard to find a leaker. You, you know, it's, if they're going to do something like this, they're going to be really, really careful. Right. So my view is there's not going to be any emails, um, even somebody who's smart enough to know sort of printing it out. And the printer is going to show who I, I've done all these investigations. I've looked for printers and who had access to it and all that kind of stuff. Um, my view is that somebody took a personal phone and, um, you know, either, you know, took photos of it or, you know, they do get copied out and somebody took it out. Um, so I'm skeptical of them ever finding the leaker. I've also had when I did leak investigations, people just lie right to my face. And, and I've subsequently learned uh, that they were the leaker um, and they actually had lawyers sitting next to them when they when they when they did that. So, um, you know. I don't know. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm always an optimist, so um, uh, th- th- hopefully they'll find this person. Um, but I will tell you one thing. Um, during, I uh, was go back to the Thomas confirmation because was, it was so monumental in terms of what happened. During the Thomas confirmation, there was a leak of a, an opinion that Justice Thomas um, had been working on. It was a three-judge panel at the D.C. Circuit, right? So he's going up to the Supreme Court, he has been sitting on the D.C. Circuit. There was an opinion that was on affirmative action or gender set asides at the FCC. It was called the Lamprecht decision. And the, the decision leaked out, which was, again, unprecedented at the time. They wanted to derail Thomas's nomination. And there were, two, there were three judges on it. Thomas, conservative judge James Buckley, brother of Bill Buckley, and Abner Mikva, who was a congressman who went on to the DC circuit. And you know what? Everyone knows it was Abner Mikva or his clerks who leaked that. 100 uh, percent certainty that they leak that result okay and i think i, I know who the clerk is okay abner mikva became counsel to the president after this so in terms of like oh you're going to find the leaker and they're going to be shunned they're going to be disbarred no in the democratic world those people were promoted the other person became a senior right. person um in the, in in the, in the obama administration and so um you know um Hopefully they'll – well, I'm surprised, they'll... Mark,
2: that the leaker hasn't already outed themselves in order to get a book deal in an MSNBC oh, the, contribution. There will show. be a book deal. There's no question I about mean, that. I no, mean, yes. I – or, or a talk show. Yeah. Mark, we've got about a minute left here uh, with you, and I've got two questions did, for you because I want to uh, oh. give you a chance to talk about this. Uh, what is your prediction on Roe v. Wade? Will this decision stand? And then I want you to tell us about the book that you're just about to publish on Clarence Thomas and tell people what it's called and where to look for we it. We've got one minute.
4: Yep, um, I think that the opinion will, uh, the, the ruling will stand. I think the opinion has probably changed a little bit, not that much, uh, is my, my sense of just looking at it and how it was uh, circulated. So I'm, I'm confident it's going to be Roe v. Wade will be overturned, which is a tremendous day for America and for the Constitution. My book is called Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. It's a book-length interview with Justice Thomas. He sat down for 25 hours with us uh, when, when there was a movie made called Created Equal that was shown on PBS. And it's an incredible look in conversation with the justice on his life, on his confirmation, on his career, on, on his views on America. It's it's riveting, and I hope everyone buys it. It comes out June twenty first. It's on Amazon right now. You can pre order it, and um, it, and I'm, I'm certain you will love it. Your your listeners will love it.
2: Thanks, Mark, for being with us on 97.1 FM Talk. One of the most important lawyers in the conservative legal movement, Mark Paoletta, a confidant of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Get his book and keep with us here on The Mark Reardon Show. I'm Scott Jennings, along with Joe Arnold, back after the top of the hour. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast.
5: Mark is not here again today. Slacker. Slacker. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings are, though. We're doing our part as good friends of Mr. Reardon. Uh, we we are on this show uh, periodically. You're on more than I am because of your role as a CNN political analyst
2: and my role as whatever I am, a complainer about the designated hitter. Yes. Uh, yeah, it that's little, pretty old. much your role, designated yeah. hitter analyst.
5: It's it's good to hear and good to I've gotten a few emails and things from some old friends back home. I grew up in Belva, went to Lindenwood over in St. Charles. Always a fan of uh, of St. Louis and radio and uh, Now Scott and I just to be clear, we're, we're big St. Louis fans, but we're coming to you today from studios in Louisville, Kentucky. St. Louisville, St. Louisville. Yeah, as as uh, what but we're I, I have on my Louisville Redbirds jersey. You do from back in the day when the Redbirds were the AAA affiliate here in Louisville. Speaking of baseball, certainly a disappointing loss last night. Ugh. It was, but it, it almost seemed like we're we're trying to get through this, and if we can get a win, great.
2: But is this going to be? I uh, I got I hate it when we lose to other aviaries. I don't. It makes me angry. I don't care for that. I mean, I feel like our bird is a. But is I a think most of St. Louis,
5: most of St. Louis. I hate to say it this way, but we'll trade a Cardinals loss for a Blues playoff win, and that was amazing. Yeah. That was a great comeback win last night. Of course, the Blues back at home tomorrow night, Enterprise Center, eight thirty against the Wild. They can bring it on home. So we're looking forward to that. But, Scott, let's get right to the big conversation of the hour.
2: That's right. We have on the line with us now a journalist, a conservative writer from National Review named Caroline Downey. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. She has written an article called Pandemic School Closures Disproportionately Harmed Poor and Minority Students, According to a Harvard Study. A lot of research has come out. And what we all knew as parents, I have four kids all in different uh uh, modes of uh, of online learning. Joe went through it as well with his kids. Uh, we all knew it at the time that it wasn't working. And now, and we were screaming about it. No one would listen. But now the research backs up what we all knew. It didn't work and it hurt poor and minority kids the most. Caroline Downey from National Review. Welcome to 97.1 FM Talk.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me.
2: Glad you're on with us today. Uh, could you just give us a little summary? I mean, there's a lot of research here. Uh, I think parents in the moment knew uh, what was happening in their hearts, but (laughs) couldn't do anything about it. Tell us, what did Harvard find out?
1: Right, so we really could have predicted, I mean, every parent, I think, who was very invested in their child education over the pandemic probably could have predicted these outcomes, but there was already a racial achievement gap in K through 12. We knew that, but of course, the school closures that were one year in some states, two years in others, or kind of sporadic in other states, you know, there'd be like six months at a time, then there'd be a pause and they'd come back, or there'd be a hybrid model where there'd be remote learning partially and then in the classroom some other days. Basically, that disruption to learning, which we knew was going to happen, uh, further drove a wedge between academic performance between white students and minority students. So, and, and I must note that in Democratic-controlled states like Washington State or uh, Oregon or even Washington, D.C., this pattern was even more egregious.
5: And not only were high-poverty schools suffering larger declines from an education standpoint, but high-poverty areas were also more inclined to go remote in the first place. Right? And stay that way and, and, and keep it as long as possible. Yes. And, the, and the study backs that up, right?
1: Right. So, I mean, these areas were clearly underprivileged, lacking resources, for, or maybe funding, whatever the issue was. They were more likely to send the kids online for prolonged periods of time. And I've been researching at the education issue since the pandemic erupted. And what I've found is that basically every student in America is now one, at least one grade level behind in major subjects. So especially math. And a lot of this was because of the remote model. They, they had to learn on a screen, and it was, um, it, it was extremely difficult for many students to concentrate. And the parents were juggling working from home while kind of babysitting their kids. It was utterly, utterly uh, disruptive. And, uh, yeah, the, the study does, does back that up.
2: Uh, Joe, to your point, and and Caroline points this out in her article, states that are considered progressive or had Democratic leadership had the longest school shutdowns. On average, these states that had that leadership had an additional nine weeks in remote instruction or more than two months. Uh, uh, and then in Republican-controlled states, you had uh, like Florida and Texas, high-poverty schools were remote for six weeks fewer on average. So they prioritized in texas and florida for instance getting kids back in the classroom what i am thinking about today i've been watching this on my television you start to see it creep back in caroline we now have this research about what happened we no one can feign ignorance now which they did for two years oh we don't know what's happening we knew no one can feign ignorance now but i'm seeing the coverage already oh we're gonna have a surge this summer oh we're gonna have you know this isn't over yet and I am wondering what's going to happen in the fall if we have a lot of COVID cases, and we have vaccines now, we have medications, we have treatments. But I'm wondering, do you believe, based on your reporting and some of this coverage, are we going to see blue states, or blue counties, or blue cities, or blue school districts try to close down this fall if we have a summer surge of COVID?
1: Well, we're approaching midterms, and uh, there's going to be a lot of pivotal races that are up for grabs, and. As studies like this, I mean, this is from Harvard. This is not, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a study like this from Harvard. At least I wouldn't. It's not Breitbart's yeah. poll. No, it's not. It's an investigative project that ran regression analyses and all kinds of other statistical research. And the correlation was so clear. States that are now dominated by progressives, they were closed for the longest period of time in the name of public health. And that neglected our children. And those children may never recover that learning loss. I mean, I've, I've I've been studying, especially younger children, so like pre-K through third grade, the speech delays that we're seeing, the, the speech therapy waiting lists we're seeing. I mean, there is going to be a whole new generation of students, not only with sort of social inhibitions, because a lot of them are not used to really seeing the humans in their lives interact without a mask on, but uh, they also have fallen behind with phonetic learning. They like literally can't make out they, like they're behind in terms of uh, formulating sentences, reading and writing, reading comprehension, just literacy generally. And I mean, that's going to be on the ballot, because whether you're a Democrat parent or Republican parent, like watching your kids like absolutely fall behind. I mean, it's it's really it's really painful. And uh, I've talked to many moderate Democratic parents across the country in districts that are overwhelmingly blue, and they say, a lot of them have told me, they will never again vote for a Democrat on the local level because of what basically their policies did to their children.
2: We're talking to Caroline Downey, a writer for National Review. She has written an article. She writes a lot of articles, by the way, and we (laughs) recommend them all. We're discussing the article she wrote on the Harvard research about How Pandemic School Closures Disproportionately Harmed Poor and Minority Students. That research came out of Harvard. Caroline, I have three children who are between pre-K and third grade and lived through this myself over the last couple of years. So I I am always hungry for information about this. And I can just tell you from personal experience, one of my kids fought through it, and I'm really proud of him. Uh, One of them has had a hard time and I can can tell, you know, having and I have an older child, too. I, I can tell having having raised one who didn't have these issues when he was, you know, in this age bracket and now having raised a couple that had to live through it in that K through two zone. It makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And I think you've raised the political issues you just raised. I don't think Democrats who were all over these policies have fully internalized that their own political constituents are hopping mad over this. And I think they're going to try to make them forget it because of Roe versus Wade or because of some other issue. When something happens to your kids, you don't forget it. You never forget it. And you especially never forget who did it, who did this to my children. I, I used to know a guy who used to say, if you want to do something nice for somebody, do something for their kids. That's what, that's what anybody would ever want you to do, do something for their kids. But the, the inverse is also true. If you want to harm someone, you want to kill a relationship with somebody, do something to their kids. That's what these politicians did. And what is most frustrating to me is that they now feign ignorance. The Secretary of Education for Biden just the other day tweeted, whoa, wow, who knew, who knew uh, that this is now that this was bad? Who could have possibly known? We knew. And, and I'm just wondering in some of your interviews, Caroline, Do parents, I assume they feel the way I do. We knew in the moment, and these politicians and these policymakers feigning ignorance now, they're not buying this garbage, are they?
1: Oh, no. I mean, parents, I mean, there's, of course, a full range of parents, but I've interviewed really a lot, and they're furious because they know all of this was 100% unavoidable in the public health, children's education trade off. It's clear that, you know, children are a very vulnerable, impressionable group. They are they are the future generations, uh, they, they, they're they not policymakers. So, I mean, these policies were affecting them and they had absolutely no input in them whatsoever. So they didn't give their consent. And, uh, and, and really parents were put in a very difficult position having to juggle working from home while kind of monitoring their children, while they opened up the Zoom screen for their daily lessons. I mean, that was the situation that parents were thrust into and while, some parents did have kind of a risk, uh, a risk tolerance for that. It, it Maybe in the first six months of the pandemic, they said, okay, we will tolerate this inconvenience because you know we, we were very afraid of this virus and we really had no idea how uh, lethal or how, uh, how widespread it would be. But two years in, there's no question that our most vulnerable population, our children, absolutely got the short end of the stick every step of the way. And they may never come back from this. I mean, it's going to take probably a lot of private tutor outsourcing, which is what I've also heard from parents. That you know, it's not enough for them to just go back to school and try and play catch up. They have to hire tutors, or uh, you know, send them to therapy if they're having lagging speech problems. They're you know, they're really they're really strapped, and they're very frustrated because. This it's interesting
5: when people talk about long COVID, or we don't know what the what the you know ultimate you know long term effects of the actual virus uh, might be. But to your point, if there's no question that there's long term effects of the educational leg, you're about right, Caroline Downey from National Review with us, Scott Jennings is here. I'm Joe Arnold. I'm a former reporter, Caroline. Let me, let me be a little not not contrarian, but let me ask you this question though. It's one thing to talk about educational deficits and how people were 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 now proven to be harmed by these policies. Is there any calculus at all as to say, because you'll see other studies that say that blue states were not as, as – uh, basically that COVID was safer. or In other words, the red states were – it was deadlier than blue states. There are some folks who will say that. They'd be wrong, but, yeah. th- but they might but say it. But, <laughs> is there, but is there any kind sure. of overlap of talking about how, how – basically how, what the health outcomes were compared to education outcomes?
1: I mean, this is a, this is kind of a broad societal trade-off question at, at the end of the day, right? But if you look at right. Democratic-controlled states, they had some of the strictest COVID mitigation regimes. And same with cities. Chicago, you know, the teachers' unions really notoriously have been fighting to keep schools closed there just basically for their own sakes, even though they're curiously kind of forgetting who they're representing here or who they're supposed to be taking care of, which is the children. But uh, again, I mean, I'm from Florida, and Florida was definitely a big target in the beginning for the way Governor Ron DeSantis managed the pandemic, because it looked, it appeared to some that it was very reckless and irresponsible, but at the end of the day, the statistics were not, like, really that different. If you look at mortalities or hospitalizations, I mean, they ended up in the same place, plateauing, even though... Florida, many would argue, obviously by all the U-Hauls coming through our highway highways, you know, over the past two years, that uh, Florida prom- Florida promoted a lot of freedom, <laughs> and that goes for economic freedom and general quality of life. And uh, it was very it was less invasive across the board, and we had similar outcomes to California. Uh, I mean, across a number of different metrics. So, and our our children in Florida are probably not suffering academically. I mean, they're not, they're not suffering academically as much as in these progressive states. Clearly uh, that Harvard study shows that that the shutdowns were shorter, much shorter. I mean, Florida and Texas really prioritized reopening these schools and um, ultimately, you know, children will be better off for it.
2: Here's the bottom line. Democratic politicians, liberal politicians, progressives prioritized this mania, the closure mania, even after they knew that children were not as susceptible to this, that the mortality rates were extremely low, they, they, they stuck with it. They knew they were wrong and they stuck with it. They knew the educational outcomes were going to be bad and they stuck with it. And at the same time, they were doing it to these minority and poor kids. They were closing the businesses and taking away the jobs of their parents. I cannot imagine a greater assault on a household than to take away your child's education and to take away your job and to take away your freedom all at the same time. But that's what these progressives did. And is it any wonder that in the polling as we sit here today, that Hispanics are moving to the Republican Party, that African Americans are moving closer to the Republican Party than they've ever been, that working class Americans are moving towards the Republican Party. They, they are the ones who were disproportionately impacted by these COVID standards. Caroline Downey, where can we find you? We know we can read you in National Review. Where can we find you on Twitter?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's Caroline Downey underscore. That's my Twitter handle. And I cover a lot of education, so topics like like this. And I just have to add one more concluding thing, which is the joke of it this all, is that about two years ago, teachers unions, especially in democratic states, were calling school reopening, or likening school reopening to white supremacy. And now that we know that the racial disparities in and, and education have only been widened, I don't think they're laughing now. So
2: the real thank the you very real white supremacy, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Caroline. The Shot real, the, and chaser, man. The, the real white supremacy was in their policies. That's the amazing, real white supremacy. They they advantaged the the wealthy white kids of America over the poor black and the poor Hispanic kids of America. And they should be forced to acknowledge. It's it's outrageous. Caroline, thank you for bringing this that to us amazing. on 97.1 FM Talk. I'm Scott Jennings in with Joe Arnold. We're sitting in for Mark Reardon today. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk. Well, see, what happened, Joe? The stock market down again today. More than 300 points. Abortion vote on the Senate floor. St. Louis Cardinals loss. We got a lot. of We got cut of the day with my man, Tim Scott, from South Carolina. All that and more on, on the 90, Mark Reardon Show on 97.1 FM Talk.
5: Yes, it is. And these are Mark's friends randomly popping into your car radios. Scott Jennings and Joe Arnold, we are guests at times for Mark and uh, looking forward to hopefully we can come back again sometime. I love this. This has been great talking to uh, 97.1 FM Talk listeners, and we hope you've uh, uh, appreciated or at least (laughs) tolerated our, our conversations here. Uh, Scott, I want to talk to you. Uh, many people know Scott from uh, CNN, his political an- uh, analysis. This is a, a reminder of your background, Scott. Uh, a longtime Republican consultant, campaign strategist, uh, worked in the George W. Bush White House uh, in political affairs there. So a, a long, long record here. So a lot of folks turn to you. I've, I've in, in national media, et cetera, New York Times, Washington Post, quote L.A. Times columnist on um, on these political matters. So, for a moment here, I'm going to take you out of the prism of speaking as a conservative and ask you more as an uh, an analyst about what we're looking at here at the midterms, uh, especially. And I, I'll go ahead and I'll bring it up off the top because it's it's the news of the day, and Democrats are really banking on the abortion. The Alito draft uh, the, you know, leak from last week as being a game changer and somewhat of a stopgap or something for what they saw as a a real hemorrhaging of of Democratic support for the, some of the very reasons we just heard about from Caroline Downey. You had school closures, obviously the inflation situation, all kind of you know uh, snowballing into what appeared to be a a tremendous uh, uh, Republican midterm election. So let me ask you about that first. In other words, do you think To what extent does the abortion issue somewhat act as a stopgap for democrats
2: well the first question on a midterm is in my opinion enthusiasm and so if you're if setting a historic baseline the party in power almost always loses ground in the midterm the last time somebody bucked the trend was 2002 george w bush and the republicans uh picked up a few seats in the 2 midterm that was in the wake of 9 11 bush was still riding pretty high. Almost every other instance in the modern era, you've got uh, the party in power losing ground. So we we know that's what's supposed to happen. Now, tack on top of that, Joe Biden's approval rating sitting in the low 40s, 40%. And you look inside the polling, Joe, on the issues on the economy and crime and other issues, Republicans seem to have the advantage. And then you start to talk about enthusiasm, which party wants to vote? And you look around these primaries and you look around the polling on enthusiasm and you can see Republicans are chomping at the bit to vote. So you add all that up and you would imagine, well, not only should they win, but they should win big. That, that would be your analyst's eye view of the Republicans. This abortion issue has roiled the water. My contention is, is that it's going to motivate some Democratic voters, maybe. It's certainly going to motivate Democratic donors. That's absolutely true. But they were never hurting for money anyway. But uh, this, is a, this is a reminder of why they give to their party. But I think it's also going to motivate Republican voters. I mean, you got to remember, Republicans have been trying for this outcome if it comes for 50 years. I mean, this has been one of the biggest motivating reasons for a lot of people to become Republicans in the first place, to try to overturn Roe versus Wade and bring some sanity to our national abortion policy. So my contention is it's ultimately going to be a wash on enthusiasm. It may ramp up enthusiasm in both parties. And in terms of what issues are going to make the biggest difference, again, inflation gas prices the economy food baby formula shortages do you feel safe in your community real day-to-day quality of life stuff is my kids school quality day-to-day quality of life i believe and that's what republicans currently believe that this is going to still be the biggest driver now one other issue the house is different than the senate i think it's a mortal lock that republicans are going to win the u.s house but the Senate's different, and the states are different, and, and it's a good environment, but Republicans still haven't quite figured out all their primary situations yet. So it's not as big of a chance that Republicans take over a 50-50 Senate, which is what it is today. But I think it's a moral lock they win the House. And if you're Joe Biden, this means gridlock, right? If, even if Republicans just pick up one or the other, you know, you're sort of stuck with gridlock for the last two years of your administration.
5: So last week in Michigan, there was a special election in a state house race, not, not a con- congressional race, but a state house race. There's a guy named Robert or R.J. Regan, and you, he was in the news for a while because he came under fire. He he suggested rape victims, lie back and enjoy it. And so that obviously was a fatal error. He was defeated by the Democrat there, but he was he was favored in that election going into it. So the Democrats looking at the saying, this is the example. This is no. But is this is this more of like a Todd Akin type situation
2: rather than, you know, a sign of a, a canary in a coal mine? Oh, well, candidates uh, and look, Republic, you pointed it out, Republicans have shot themselves in the foot in past election cycles. You know, just let's say what being an idiot. I mean, Todd Akin, Richard Murdoch, that cycle back in 2012, 2010, we had the witch, Christine O'Donnell. I forgot we about had, her. <laughs> we had a couple of other yahoos running. I mean, people saying stupid stuff, essentially being bad candidates can absolutely cost you a race, even when the environment says you should win. And so what that guy said is reprehensible. It's awful. It's dumb. And Republicans should take note of this and speak about these issues responsibly and talk about them from a principled point of view, but saying flip or stupid or condescending, you want to, you want to defeat a good environment. Be an idiot because being an idiot will defeat a good environment. Every Republican should look at what you just said. There's a way to defend your values. There's a way to be a good candidate and take advantage of an environment and stay true to your values, and you don't have to be an idiot to do it.
5: Let me ask another question about this: the way the districts are drawn, because the, it seems to me, and this, of course, you know, it, every ten years it changes in terms of the census and mm-hmm. and these districts and things. But it seems to me that there is just there there are fewer Flips in general uh, than there were than maybe maybe twenty or thirty years ago. There just seem to be more, for lack of a better words, purple districts before that were drawn more competitively, and now it's almost like uh, rather than gerrymandering happening happening to benefit one party, it's almost just to benefit the incumbents. Yeah, and so as a result, there, is there is there even that much? Is is there is there less low hanging fruit? In other words, does that does that mean that the, the 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 switching from one party to the next? Whether in, in either uh, House, uh, House or the Senate, is, does it become less likely? Of course, the Senate is not gerrymandered. That's, that's drawn by the— It was the
2: gerrymandered originally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look but at the lines. But at least on the House side. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Uh, in the redistricting that happened this year, it was thought at the beginning of the cycle, and a narrative that was pushed by Democrats, was that Republicans were going to gerrymander the map and steal all these seats. What happened? The opposite, Democrats actually, through their own hard work and gerrymandering, they did better in the redistricting than anyone expected and probably saved themselves four or five seats. To your point about uh, swingable districts, yes, there are fewer swingable districts. However, however, caveat, in a world where Joe Biden's in the low 40s, Republicans are up on the generic ballot and the environment is so good for Republicans, I guarantee you there is a Democratic incumbent member of the House somewhere in America right now who has no idea that he or she, is in, a, is in a world of hurt. They don't know they're in a competitive race. They don't know that they're on the brink of losing. You're going to see some districts fall. If the environment holds, even districts that were once thought fortress by the party in power, Democrats, could come down. This is what happened in 2010. Uh, it's what happened in 2018. I mean, we you know you see these wave elections where the environment is so good for one party or the other. We're in an environment like that right now. It is almost unheard of for Republicans to lead on the generic ballot. And so that kind of, environment, generic lead, and enthusiasm. Even a district that you don't think of as swing may find itself uh, on the chopping block in a, in a wave election.
5: I was an intern in Congress for the late, uh, great Jack Beekner of St. Louis County, St. Charles County, that area like that. I mean, that district always seemed to be more you know, purplish, and these these things have just changed a lot.
2: Yeah, and, and also, uh, people have sorted themselves out, right? You have fewer Democrats now uh, uh, voting Outside of their own party. Same for you know, the, the voting population has sorted itself. So Republicans vote Republican, Democrats vote Democrat. You just don't have a ton of um, a ton of switch over on the you know uh, people who identify with the parties. You do have a growing group of people in America who identify as independents. They don't love either political party and don't necessarily want to identify with it. But that doesn't mean they don't have values that they don't usually vote one way or the other. They just don't like to identify with the party before we go to break. And this is a lot to ask you in the, before
5: we go to break. But As far as the senate is concerned what states are going to decide the balance of power in the senate
2: great question so there are a number of states uh that are going to be the marquee races 100 150 million dollar races republicans are trying to take out georgia which they lost in the special election last january uh that's senator warnock they're trying to pick off mark kelly in arizona uh which they narrowly lost in the last cycle uh the that race Uh, he he beat martha mcsally they're trying to win against the incumbent Democrat Cortez Masto in Nevada. That's right. Uh, and then there may be some others. On defense, and uh, uh, I should add, New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan. I, I, would, I would put her at a tier one pickup for Republicans. On defense, Republicans are defending territory in Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson. They are defending an open seat in Pennsylvania. And the primaries are coming up, and there's a huge Republican primary fight going on right now. The Trump endorsed Doctor Oz. Doctor Oz versus uh, McCormick, who's kind of the choice of a lot of other Republican. You know, interestingly, McCormick has kind of unified some Trump-era Republicans in some establishment. republic. He's got support from both camps, and then there's a new candidate who's surging, Barnett, uh, who is uh, uh, who's been called ultra MAGA. <laughs> yeah. And because of the the uh, nastiness, frankly, between Oz and McCormick, there's a third lane opening up. That one is not sorted out. Uh, so Pennsylvania is going to be an expensive battleground where Republicans are on defense. There's other races. Other things could come on the board. Uh, Missouri, you know, we're, we're, we're talking to folks in Missouri right now. If Republicans nominate Greitens, that probably goes on the board. If they nominate anyone else, it probably is a safe seat. But those four – dem- you're, you're saying that you think that's a safe if, – if anyone but Eric Grytons is a nominee, you think it's safe for Republicans? I don't think either party will contend it. I think it'll be a, really? a, a foregone conclusion. I think if Grytons is the nominee, Democrats will re-engineer their budget. Remember, they don't lack for money. They, you know, they have plenty of money, so they can absolutely uh, try to spend heavily in Missouri. But I think those four Democrat pickups, those two Republican defensive places, that, that's where – that's where we're really running the United States Senate races. Again, there's other races on the board. Republicans have great candidates in Washington state and in Vermont, bluer states, but in a wave, in a wave, and they and they have great stories. And in a wave, a good candidate, even in a, a weird area, you know, can make a move. So, uh, but that's my view on it. So uh, Republicans look good in the House. I still call it a 50-50 Senate. Environment tilts Republican. Enthusiasm tilts Republican. Abortion roils the water. But Economy and inflation
5: still rules the day. 540 on a hot Wednesday afternoon in St. Louis, 97.1 FM Talk, The Mark Reardon Show. That's Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. He mentioned Ultra Mega. That's one nickname Joe Biden has given Republicans. And we come back, the new one today, here on The Mark Reardon Show. Joe Arnold and Scott Jennings in from Mark Reardon. Thank you for letting us come into your homes, cars, or wherever else you enjoy Mark Reardon's show the last couple of days. Hopefully we can come back sometime. We'll talk more about that in a minute. You know, yesterday, uh, Nancy Pelosi talked about Republican Party being a cult. You know, Joe Biden yesterday talked about uh, describing the the ultra-mega culture. Which again, you talked to us yesterday. It's almost like he's—they do a good job of of giving Republicans nicknames.
2: Yeah, they they try to like make the people they hate sound cool. It's like they're terrible at the nickname game. But today, Joe Biden
5: went a step further or farther. In we went from ultra mega to MAGA, MAGA king. Let's hear from the president. The the Great Mega King.
4: Greece,
5: every year, he's all right, he's speaking so, at, at a big old hall there. But the, uh, great, the great Mega great me- King. But the Great—that almost sounds like like something like it actually exists. I, the it, Great Mega King, like from The
2: Wizard of Oz or something. The Great Mega King. What I can't figure out is whether they are going. Well, first of all, a lot of people try to emulate Trump. Trump sort of perfected the you know uh, insult comic being inserted into politics, right? So he insults everybody, everybody was running against in 16, like that's his thing. And a lot of people try to emulate that. And I I can't tell if Democrats and specifically the president are just emulating that because they think that's what you do to get ahead. Or if this is a strategy to try to just fire up their base or convince people to come to their side, I don't think that's gonna work. You know what, this is the the, the 30,000 foot view of all this though, Scott, is this.
5: And this is from someone who – I'll cut myself in trouble on 97.1 FM talk when I say this have – never, have never been a fan of Trump, okay? Uh, not that I was a fan of the other candidates on the other side. I'm just saying it's, it's – a lot of the things that you talked about, what he did, you know, just from a presentation standpoint, uh, that were unappetizing to me. But the thing that Donald Trump feeds on, the thing that makes – his lifeblood is attention, that's the only way and the only reason why he's able to continue to be a factor. So why would the Democrats, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, whatever else, why would they continue to, in my opinion, as we we're pointing out, to continue to pay so much attention to him? He's, a, he's an ex-president. He's gone. He's off of Twitter, at least for now. Why not just, I mean, to me, the way that you, 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 you buckle the hose and cut the water flow off, is stop talking about them.
2: Let me let me break it down for you. All right, it's very simple. Okay, this election is yes. a midterm. The party in power controls all three branches of government. And this election's either gonna be a referendum on them, Joe Biden specifically, or it's gonna be about something else. My bet is it's gonna be a referendum on them. And that's what they're also betting. They're harkening back to 2020, when the referendum on Trump sunk Trump. They're thinking back to 2018. Trump was in power, they won the midterm. So Democrats know so that if, if that if the conver- in a row, I if the it. conversation, okay. if mm-hmm. the conversation is about Joe Biden, they lose, and they think if the conversation about Donald Trump, they win. Here's where I think they're falling short in their strategic thinking. What people didn't like about Trump was more. You, you alluded to this was more personal. Biden seems to tr- be trying to make a policy argument against Trump, but th- that's what brought people to him. They liked. Right. They liked what he did on the economy. They you know they they like i mean he heard it all the time i like what he does i like a lot of the policies i like that he stands up to china i like that he cracks down on illegal immigration i don't like his behavior i don't like his tweets they're making it about policy and right now if i were the democrats i wouldn't want to have a policy debate with anybody because if i compared you know take covid out of it if i compared the trump economic record versus the biden economic record that's a debate they're going to lose and so I I think I just think they're trying to get through every day. I don't I don't really think they're thinking through the strategic implications of their actions. And
5: frankly, as far as uh, the Republicans who held their nose and voted for Trump in 2016 in the first place was because the Merrick Garland seat had been held. Yeah. You had an open one out there. And wait a second. You mean we can vote for
2: a Supreme Court justice and all those people who who didn't like Trump? personally, but ended up voting Republican in that election. They got three. They got three. And it, it, it wasn't like they were expecting Trump to appoint moderates. They wanted him to appoint conservative judges. And so. And he put the whole uh, list out there. Yeah. From the, was it from the Federalist Society? Yep. You know, to say, here's my list. You, I mean, you're going to get one of these. One, one thing that people forget, this, this is a still, in my opinion, a center-right country. It's still a center-right country. And the more Democrats legislate and strategize based on what they see on their Twitter feed versus what's happening in across America, which isn't generally on Twitter as much as the progressive left is the worse off they're going to be. This white house, I think sets their policy and sets their strategy based on blue check Twitter. And they really ought to set it based on middle America. Speaking of Twitter, you can find uh, Scott
5: Jennings, Scott Jennings, KY on Twitter. I am at Joe Arnold report. Also can find us at the flyover pod because we host a weekly flyover podcast with Scott Jennings and enjoy that. But before we head out today and before we get to the audio cut of the day, yes, I have to thank Fred Bottomer and Abby Hobold back at 97.1 FM Talk Studios. Abby, get on the microphone, please. Will you please so we can hear your, your, your you have the greatest voice that is not regularly on the radio. Well,
1: thank, thank you. Thank you
2: for everything that you've done for Scott.
1: Of course. It's been a pleasure working with you guys.
2: You've been so good to us and made us made this show sound good for two days. But frankly, better than Fred. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say so too. I I'm, mean, I'm sort Fred, of. A, I was. I used to like
5: Fred. Then I met Abby. Yeah, I will say whenever Abby calls, like when you and I are the are a guest on Mark's show, and it's 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 just exceedingly pleasant and polite. Is it, now? Let me ask you about your about your parents, Abby. Is it? Did they raise you this way? Where Where do you get your exceedingly pleasant? Just just a, a upbeat personality. Where does that come from?
1: I would say definitely my parents. You know, I was raised to always treat people how I want to be treated. So, you know, I, I take that to heart and I try to treat everyone exactly how I'd like to be treated.
2: The golden rule, man. Right from right from Abby's lips to hopefully everyone listening to this show's ears. That is a great rule to live by. Abby, thank you so much, and Fred, we still love you too. Goodness gracious, thank you, Fred. You're
5: Speaking welcome. Speaking of
2: Fred and Abby, they'll be. A... <laughs> hey, Fred. Speaking they'll be all over us if we
5: forget. Yeah. Now it's time for the audio cut of the day.
6: Now, the audio cut of the day.
5: And the audio cut of the day is sponsored by the Good Feet Store. Comfort,
2: energy, and pain relief at the Good Feet Store. Scott, we have two very recognizable voices. The Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, talking in a congressional hearing with South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Let's hear Tim Scott drop the mic.
1: In many cases, um, abortions are of teenage women, um, particularly low income and often black, who um, aren't in a position to be able to care for children, have um, unexpected pregnancies, and it Deprives them of the ability, often, to continue their education to later participate in the workforce. So there, there is a spillover into labor force participation. Yeah. But yeah. and uh, it means that children will grow up in poverty yeah. and do do worse themselves. Thank and you. Let me is, let me just say my is time harsh. off topic. This is the truth. I'll
0: just simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty, I'm thankful to be here as United States Senator.
2: Tim Scott with the audio cut of the day, dropping the mic on Janet Yellen, who I, I, Joe, I can't believe she sat there with a straight face and made that argument in front of Tim Scott. That was a huge, just complete lack of self-awareness and a big mistake. Thank you for listening this uh, last couple of days to Scott
5: and I. I'm Joe Arnold. He's Scott Jennings on 97.1 FM Talk. Scott, take it home. Mark
2: Reardon will come back to work someday soon. Thanks for listening to us. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.